Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on the musical mind. Did music make us who we are? It certainly seems to make us different from other animals. Playing music can be a supreme display of virtuoso skill. Composing music, the supreme display of human creativity. And listening to music can give us this sense of beauty, sense of the sublime even, in a way that nothing else can. So is this all a evolutionary accident? Is it a kind of happy accident, just a sort of bonus, that when a species involves, in, evolves intelligence to the extent that we have, it also, just as a byproduct, evolves the capacity to play and create and listen to music? Or is there more to it than that? Is there a deeper connection? Is there a sense in which the evolution of music is tangled up in a more intimate way with the evolution of the human mind? Those are our questions tonight. And it's a real pleasure to be joined by three panelists who are going to bring real insights on those questions from a variety of different disciplinary backgrounds. They are Diana Omigi, cognitive neuroscientist from uh, Goldsmiths University of uh, London. Ian Cross, Professor of Music and Science at the University of Cambridge. And Barry Smith, Director of the Institute of Philosophy in London. So let's start with you, Diana. I mean, you're part of the Mind, Brain and Music project at Goldsmiths that is about trying to understand what is going on in people's brains when they listen to music. What have you found out then? about what is going on in the brain? So, <clears throat> yeah, so I'm part of the Music, Mind and, and Brain group. And uh, in this group, we tend to explore musical behavior and all of its, and musical experiences and all of its glory. So we ask quite a wide range of questions, everything from how do we develop musicality um, to how do, um, yeah, how may music have therapeutic benefits? When we're looking at the brain, we ask questions like, when we're learning to play an instrument, how is the brain changing? Or, you know, what is it about, what is it in our brain that predicts whether or not we're going to get a, you know, we're more likely to get an earworm stuck in our head. So this is you know, a wide variety of questions we ask. Of course, we also just ask the generic question, what's happening in our brain when we listen to music? Yeah, That's should we focus of, on that learning to play an instrument then? I mean, so you're saying the brain literally changes? Yeah, so... Um, in what way? So the structure of the brain changes. You'll see differences in the so-called auditory cortices where we're just processing sounds. You'll see differences um, in the motor areas involved in movements and mm. other areas that somehow that we know are involved in sort of the act of making music and learning how to, to make music. So it's neuroplasticity is this ability mm. of, that the brain has to change with use. And it's a really fascinating thing. It raises a, a, a nature-nurture question, doesn't it? Because I can't personally play any musical instrument. Is it the case that any human being could be the most wonderful player of any instrument? Or do you think there's an important genetic component so as well? There is definitely a strong genetic component. And, you know, the genetic basis of musicality is something that's actively researched. We're a bit behind people who've studied, you know, language and what's going on there. But there is definitely a case for just applying yourself and, you know, it's, if it's 10,000 hours or whatever it is, you know, there's, you know, no reason not to try. And certainly we, our brains change as we put that effort in. So anyone can get to average in 10,000 yeah, hours. Yeah, I'd say. 
I don't know how many hours, but certainly. What about the experience of music then? It's very um, strange, isn't it? It's not like any other experience. No. So when we're listening to music, um, there's a lot going on in the brain. So obviously we might expect areas involved in just processing sounds are active and they are, but then we see areas involved in processing sequences of any kind. So the same areas that would be involved if we were watching a dance performance, which is a series of movements. Um, we'll see areas involved in emotion processing. So the areas that would allow us to recognize a sad face, you know, discriminated from a happy face, mm. but also reward areas, areas involved in reading other people's minds. So theory of mind, inferring what other people might be thinking in a situation. And, you know, last but not least in this non-comprehensive list, we might mm. also see areas involved in evaluation. Why? Because ultimately a beauty judgment is a, a judgment of value. And um, when we are deciding that a piece of music is beautiful or experiencing it as beautiful, we're probably engaging those kinds of evaluative processes in the brain and so you think that. that that sort of that aspect of judgment aesthetic judgment judging the piece to be beautiful or not is actually an intrinsic part of the experience of listening to music in the first place um i think as soon as i mean in these studies where we kind of throw people in the scanner or have them sort of actually you know report on their experiences because we should as scientists we can't tell them what's beautiful and us you know then measure their brain mm. responses um because by definition we're getting them to sort of listen and evaluate it's it's possible that we're sort of forcing that evaluative kind of um process but i, I like to think that um and most models of you know aesthetic processing or aesthetic experience put in this evaluation component the judgment involves kind of deciding of you know deciding what the value is and i think mm -hmm. whether it's intrinsic to every experience or whether i like to think as well that we sometimes get triggered into sort of thinking in that way when something captures our attention and we think maybe this is more mm -hmm. than just an enjoyable piece of music it's worth sort of you know considering in as an artwork or something of value what we know about what it is that makes a piece of music beautiful because certainly if you, if you look around the world i mean you have this huge variation of different styles of music uh, you know, on the face of it, you might think absolutely nothing in common compared piece of classical music to hip hop, for example. Or, mm. But are there things we can say in general about what yeah. so, pieces of music have? So, the, you know, thanks to one of the fathers of experimental psychology, uh, most psychologists subscribe to this idea of aesthetics von unten from underneath. So bottom up aesthetics, we have to ask people what they find beauty, uh, beautiful. And when we've done that um, in one of our studies, we, we actually got people to sort of just bring in pieces of music in which they had identified beautiful passages. And we were interested in, because the definition of beauty has changed over decades, centuries, we wanted to just know what people report experiencing or feeling when they report experiencing beauty. And um, we got them to sort of rate their emotions on three, three dimensions that psychologists tend to use. So feeling of pleasantness, um, energy, feeling alive and activated, or just feeling kind of tense. Um, and not surprisingly, across the board, beauty experiences tended to be very pleasant experiences. What was more interesting was and this is in line with the definition of dictionary definition of beauty uh, today. But what was more interesting was there was a whole wide range of um, experiences of arousal, everything from very calm experiences to mm. high tension, high energy, the sorts of kind of emotions you might ex you might expect if you were you know 
going to be talking about the sublime or the awesome. So what we t- yeah. took away from that study was, you know, the you know, com- common parlance, people's experiences of beauty are pleasant, but they can be very wide ranging in, you know, in terms of arousal, not necessarily following this idea of processing fluency, which is a popular psychological um, theory that the more easy it is to process, the more beautiful it should come across to people. Apparently novelty interest is important. Mm. And then last but not least, I think um, what it suggests to me is that beauty is whatever kind of captures and holds attention. Yeah. Um, mm. So it's not just pleasure that we're seeking from music. It's really this whole range of emotions. Apparently, yeah. I think I think it might just be contextual. So, you know, whatever sort of... Yeah, different moments lead us to seek different things from music. I think so. I saw you've done... Um, a study on atonal music, is that right? How people respond to... Yeah, so it was, yeah, we, we did a sort of a, sort of an analysis of structural aspects of um, tonal and atonal music. It was more of a hypothesis or a sort of opinion article where we were just suggesting that actually this is a very interesting style of music to explore when we're thinking about the aesthetic experience because on the one hand, we have music, tonal music, which is very similar to language, has this hierarchical structure we kind of know what's coming. We get it. Sometimes we don't get it. It's very exciting. And then we get what we expected. Mm. With atonal music, you don't really have that model of what's going to happen. And we were interested in how um, this kind of experience may really lend itself to these more, mm. our desire to actually make sense. The structure is really unpredictable. Yeah. It can actually create that sense of surprise. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's hard. Hard to be surprised when you didn't even know what was going to come next. So I think it's more like you can enter that sort of altered state where you just kind of let things flow by. And this is a special passion of my my friend and colleague, um, Eris, and she is the one who's leading this work that I'm involved in, where we care about, you know, what is the, how are people deriving pleasure from eternal mm. music? Where is it to be had when it's, you know, when there is no structure? That it's something mm. to do with your predictions of what's coming next being yeah, yeah, we wonder whether sort of there's a pleasure in learning, learning, trying so hard to learn the structure, even if it's not there, or find structure where it isn't, or just allow yourself, I think Schoenberg said, just be suspended as you move from one unpredictable note to the mm. next, as opposed to be taken for a ride where you know exactly mm. what might happen next. Yeah, I wanted to uh, ask about congenital amusia as well, these cases where, well, tone deafness, I suppose, yeah. in, in ordinary language. You, you've looked yeah. at that as well, haven't you? Yeah, so I did a lot of work on amusia during my congenital amusia during my PhD, and um, it's uh, for those. Yeah, some people refer to it as tone deafness, but it's one has to be quite careful because lots of people mm. say oh, I'm tone deaf, I can't sing, <laughs> I can't keep up. Yeah, you know, yeah, that can too. have a lot of meanings, kind of. But yeah, we're talking so, about people who genuinely, I suppose, cannot experience music. Yeah, so they have difficulty recognizing melodies that should be familiar to all of us because we hear them all the time, you know, melodies like Happy Birthday or theme tunes of well-known loved programs. Um, So they have these kinds of difficulties and the early estimates suggest that about 4.4% of the population have this uh, developmental disorder, more conservative. 4% did you say? Yeah, but more recent estimates put it at 1.5. Either way, I should say there isn't this sort of bimodal distribution. It is the lower end of a, a normal distribution. It's just people who really struggle compared to the rest of us to sort of do these mm. kind of um, easy tasks. It's a bit like faces, I suppose. People vary a huge amount yeah. in how easily they recognize faces. Exactly. And this is like that, but with, with tunes. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's very similar in that sense to other developmental disorders like prosopagnosia, difficulty with faces or dyslexia, mm. difficulty with sort of linguistic mm. units. 
Um, and the question is why? Why? Do, and of course, it's different to acquired amusia, where you've incurred some sort of brain damage, and as a result, you're having difficulty making sense of musical sound. And the question is why they have this difficulty. At first, we thought because this was the most obvious kind of behavioral difficulty, we thought it was just a, a case of poor fine-grained pitch discrimination. You can't tell one pitch from the other. Um, it turns out it's more likely to be what my studies were showing and certainly what others have shown a lot is that it might just be a disorder of awareness. And in that case, it's in that sense, it's quite similar to prosopagnosia and other sort of many other developmental disorders where you have the brain areas involved in processing um, faces or music in this case, mostly intact, but the connectivity between these key areas being somehow compromised. And what it seems, what that seems to do is limit the amount of conscious access these people have to the knowledge that they actually have implicitly yeah. as to how music works. So the processing is going on of the, of the tunes, but unconsciously it's never reaching Yeah, it's conscious they're awareness. finding it difficult to sort of reach in and say, yes, that was a wrong note. And um, yeah, actually mm. this does sound familiar. Mm. And mm. in terms of, you know, what that means, how does that have wider implications for their enjoyment? It's quite funny because it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, you might expect, well, they won't, they'll hate it. They won't like it much. I mean, limited ability must mean compromised enjoyment of it. In fact, when we did a study looking exactly at this, what is the experience of music in Amusia? Um, and we did an experience sampling study, which means that we kind of contacted people in the stream mm -hmm. of everyday life to ask them, how are you experiencing music? Well, less directly, but, you know, can you hear music? Do you like it? Yeah. Do you turn it on? Um, and then we use this kind of clustering algorithm to see if, you know, controls or typicals would cluster on their own mm. and they music on the other side. We actually found that controls did cluster on their own. They tended, to, or typicals, they tend to enjoy music, use it a lot. About 70% of A musics clustered on their own, didn't use music much, didn't care much for it. Yeah. But then 30% of A musia, uh, people with A musia, generally musia, were actually in the control group. So we had these two groups and they were with the controls or typicals and they seemed to be on some level yeah. enjoying music just as so much. So 30% of the people with amusia, they can't hear the tune, but they still enjoy it. They still they enjoy were, the yeah, music. Yeah, when, when, you know, on average, when they were contacted, they were either listening to it and expressing enjoyment of it, or they'd chosen mm -hmm. to put it on, or they were just acting like controls. And we wondered so whether... What, what are they getting out of it then? We tried to sort of correlate, you know, their enjoyment or the fact, you know, see if it was because they were just better at making sense of music, were they less likely to, um, were they more likely to identify the outer keynote, were they more likely to remember? We couldn't really predict it by their perceptual abilities. So we just wondered whether there are a group of people who really tried hard to, well, they recognize yeah. the things that music gives us other than sort of sonic pleasure. And they said, I want it for the social benefits. You mean, yeah, the, the, the social side of music. Mm. Yeah, the, there's so much to enjoy about the... The shared experience, I suppose. For example. Fascinating so that even if you don't actually hear the music, people still will enjoy that social aspect. Yeah, I mean, it might be social. I mean, we like, I think that's probably a very good candidate of what's going on. Um, I mean, one wonders as well whether, so this diagnostic tool we have for um, Amusia is actually very much targeting pitch. And it's possible that they have some, you know, a decent amount of rhythmic perceptual ability and they actually just enjoy bobbing along mm. to the so music. perhaps there's the, the rhythm you can experience yeah. the rhythm without experiencing the pitches of any of the notes for sure yeah and they can hear it and it may just right. not be unpleasant so some people think it's quite unpleasant and might be tied up with all other sorts of you know mm. syndromes but they might just not find it unpleasant they get the pulse they get the shared bonding enjoyment everyone seems to have of it and they just mm. you know enjoy that i'd love to bring barry in on this barry we're talking here about congenital amusia and how it might resemble other disorders where you perhaps can't recognize faces or something like that and that 
brings us to your interests about how the senses relate to each other and how the experience of music might relate to experiences we have in the other senses. Yes, I mean, I, I think it, it's also a good question to ask what is it that's so distinctive about the experience we have of listening to music. It's, a, it's an engagement with a kind of sound that, as you said, Jonathan's very different from just listening to ordinary ambient sounds. Mm. So it sort of captures our attention. We experience it musically, most of us. And then the thought is, is that like exercising a special sense that picks up and detects something there? We might wonder if it's more like hearing a language. I mean, hearing a language is also uh, mm. the engagement with a very special sort of sound. Hearing speech sounds is not like hearing other things. So is it is it more like one or the other? And I and I think there are things to be said for each of them. So if we if we think of the the uh, the idea of music as a bit like a language, it's got the two sides that that language have. There's the perception side and the production side. Somebody making the speech and then somebody hearing it, and similarly making the music and hearing it. But there's a the, the, and there's also another almost abstract kind of mathematical cognition side to it as mm. there is to language. We don't just pick up with a sense what is in the acoustic stream, because of course the acoustic stream is a continuous sound stream. We segment it. So you've got a continuous rise in pitch, but we tend to hear the pitches in an octave as, you know, separate notes, separate separate yeah. tones. Some discrete sounds. Discrete. So we're obviously, it's something internal, something between our ears that's segmenting the sound to treat it as music. Just as we, as we talked just now, there's no gap acoustically between the words that we use. We don't leave pauses between mm -hmm. words. But nonetheless, our brain is yeah. segmenting it very Passing, yeah. yeah. And we, we hear our own language very differently from how we hear foreign languages, or at least I do, because when exactly. I hear a foreign language I don't yeah. understand, I, I lose that ability to pass the individual words. That's, that's right. We, do, we don't even hear the, um, the boundaries between words in a foreign language that we, we just don't comprehend at all. It's just a continuous stream. Mm. So therefore, you might think, well, maybe music's a bit like language. It's something that occurs between our ears. And people who are convinced of that more formal nature might say, well, Remember, there's a distinction between language and speech. Language is yet more abstract. You can sign language, you can speak language, or you can write language. So there can also be a score for music for those of those with the talent to, 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 to recognize and read music. It doesn't even need to sound. And I'm reminded of uh, Michael Nyman when he was at the Royal Academy of Music. He was working on scores of Purcell's rarely produced uh, pieces, and he said that he suddenly found out from a friend that one of these pieces was going to be performed uh, in a concert nearby. And he was a little bit afraid to go because he didn't know if he wanted to hear these sounds he'd been studying just mm. as a score. Might just be a disappointment. Yeah, it might be idealized. Yeah, and it might not be the same thing at all. So if we now look at the disanalogies and go back to the senses, the disanalogies, I think, pick up on the points that Diana was making. Um, so when we have uh, amusia, uh, and, and this acquired amusia, you can have musicians who, through brain insult or injury, suddenly are unable to recognize a melody. They can tell you every note that was played. 
but not, as it were, the melody or the sequence. Can they carry on playing the music? So you can have people they, who can play music might, and not hear they might, it. Be, they might be able to do that. I, I don't know. But, the, but I, I'm interested in when that happens, their language is intact. I mean, you mm. get a double dissociation between having lost the capacity for language and still somehow being able to hold a tune or, or even sing. And on occasion, you've got a acquired amusia, but, but no compromising of the language, unless you're speaking Chinese, which is a tone language, and then there will be compromise. But, but if you think of music as more like a sense, it's not just auditory, it's processed, but the biggest contribution to it is, and that's true for people with amusia, as Diana said, is the beat. So when you have, when you have the beat, when you have rhythm, and if you have meter and you've got the beat, uh, you're involving, and I learned this from a, a beautiful PhD thesis of Jenny Judge, musicologist and philosopher, you, you're using not just your ears, but you're using the vestibular system. That's the little series of ear canals that tell you whether you're going forward, backwards, sideways, and so on. That system is actually involved in helping you monitor where the, the pulses are coming mm. or the beat. And another interesting thing to show you that speech and language are very distinct is for people, sadly, in older age, when they lose their hearing, hearing aids will allow them to do uh, parsing of the you know, auditory scene analysis. They'll be able to pick out speech sounds, but it's hopeless at a concert. They can't hear a thing. It just becomes you know, murky and mushy. So to get them to better parse or segment the musical sounds, Tapping people with, in time with uh, the meter or the beat, giving them visual clues as to the, the, the pulse beats, actually start mm. to help their ears tune up to and segment things to begin to hear the musical sounds again. So it's, it's a little bit like multisensory perception because we're using touch, mm. uh, internal uh, sounds from our, from our vestibular, so internal uh, movement from our vestibular so system. It's a sort of balance system, it's, isn't it? It's, it's balance, yeah. And it's using this all together. Now, there's another sense that, that we often don't talk about, and that's mm. interoception. So interoception is not paying attention to your external surroundings, but it's paying attention Receiving to... Receiving your own internal state. Your own internal bodily state, yeah. yeah responding exactly, responding yeah. to your own internal bodily state. Now, turns out that there's an incredibly important connection between the heart and the brain. Every time the heart beats, it sends a signal to the brain, and that signal can be used to affect cognition, perception, and emotion. And when you listen to music, your heart becomes entrained to the change of pace in the music. As the music speeds up, your heart rate speeds up. As the music slows down, your heart rate speeds down. So this entrainment of your internal functioning and your ability to tap mm. into that with your interoception is again a way in which you're embodying the music. And there's a nice byproduct of that, that if you and I are listening to the same piece and our hearts are being entrained by the music, our heart rates will be similar. And we know that when people have get into similar cardiac mm. states, they feel more together. They feel more connected. They feel more emotionally bonded. So maybe yeah. at a rave, it's not the... MDMA mm. that's doing it. Maybe it's the fact that music is in training us to get in into cooperation, the sense of coordination. And coordination. Back, so that's that social experience of music. Uh, yes, yeah, so we, we think of music as being about the ears, but really, yeah, it's not just about the ears. It's about uh, all, all the senses. 
it's all the senses and it might be an answer to the question that that we were just discussing you were discussing with diana it could be that mm. even with amusia if you aren't able to tune into rhythm and it is in training your heart rate then you might feel that sense of feeling together connectedness through music even if you're yeah. not getting relative pitch well, just uh, mix in a few questions then from the from the audience on this perhaps particularly on this theme of how music relates to language there's a question ah. here that on the similarities between language and music, what role do you think meaning plays? Language obviously has this function of, of carrying meaning. Music often seems very abstract, but then we, we sometimes talk about music having meaning as well. I suppose this is a question for you, Diana, about do, does the meaning we attach to the music, perhaps if we hear the same piece of music over and over again, and it comes to mean something for us, does that then affect the way we hear it? I think so. So this is framework um, from a psychologist and he's listed about these seven ways in which music can induce emotions or let's, let's say meaning here, <laughs> or let's say emotions and meaning. And one of them was evaluative conditioning. So it's just, you know, you hear the same piece of music always in this particular context and now it'll begin to have that meaning for you. You know, that song means weddings or, you know, you hear this piece of music whenever you do X. So now it has all and has all of that. And there's episodic memory as well in all mm. of that. But um, I think it's interesting, the question of, you know, meaning and music. Um, certainly when psych music psychology, neuroscience of music began, we liked to do lots of studies that sort of emulated what had been done in language. And we started with syntax. Hey, look, you know, an unexpected musical event creates the same sort of electrical physiological signatures as a grammatically incorrect word at that point. Um, but also um, studies were done to see if music mm. can actually show, convey meaning. And so just as you would have a sentence that where you wouldn't expect to see peanut butter at the end of it because of the way it's constructed or what it should mean. Um, and, you know, and that would introduce some sort of electrophysiological brain signature because it was so incongruent with what you expected in terms of meaning. We saw the same studies were done sort of around music and they showed that if you primed people with a piece of music and then presented the word that was somehow incongruent with what you might, what you might conjure in your mind when you hear that piece of music, you would get that same electrophysiological signature. So that ERP component suggesting that that as you were listening, you were creating this meaning. And when something um, incongruent with that mm. meaning was presented, the brain recognizes, hey. So I think there's kind of meaning that comes from, you know, you rehearsing or having that music in different contexts. Yeah. And now you've created that meaning to it. And then there's the meaning that can actually be derived from the acoustics, so, the properties. Know, I feel, I feel like the, yeah, the, the songs I enjoy the most anyway are not songs I'm hearing for the first time, but songs that I've heard hundreds of times, you know, but, yeah. but they've acquired a meaning, they're, they're attached to some specific yeah. time in my life. Yeah, so episodic memory of, you know, it's in that yeah. sense, kind of music Memory can particular have... episodes in the, in the past. Yeah, and you know, autobiographical you know memories. Do you know what they mean, Jonathan? I mean, I, I, think, I, yeah. I think we all have the musical souvenir experience, but mm -hmm. a big disanalogy between music and language is, is on this issue of meaning. I mean, I, I, yeah, linguistic you can't read off the meaning of a song no, in quite the yeah. same way. No, and, it, and, and, and I mean, a sentence can have a determinate meaning. It can be truth or valuable. It can be true or false. It's not obvious there's anything in meaning to do that. And some people go for, well, it's indeterminate meaning or it's a very non-propositional meaning. And, and then you say, well, can you tell me more about it? And they're often not able to tell you much more about it. But the, I, think, I think there's something, I, I think we should ask Ian, because Ian's got a very interesting view about this 
about where the meaning comes from in context. But, but one of the things I think is, if you take a Gricean story about meaning something by, by an utterance, there are two intentions. One intention is the intention to communicate something, mm. and I want you to recognize that. And the other intention is about what I want to communicate, the content or the proposition. Now, I think music, musical composition or, or, or playing musical notes is like a communication, but it's the first intention. I'm communic I have an intention to communicate to you, and I want you to feel communicated too. But mm. I think there's great indeterminacy about the second intention, which language is very precise about mm. the very content. Ian, do you want to come in as, as by suggestion? Sure. Um, I would suggest that that's because we simply use them for different things. We don't tend to have to make mutually apparent to the person with whom we're making music precisely what it is that we intend in our act of making music, other than making music. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. we, we have got, as it were, half of the, the language bit, but I would suggest it's quite an important bit. That is that we, we have a communicative intention and that communicative intention is recognized. I think so. Mm. And I've, I've heard musicians, I mean, you're, you're probably a musician, um, uh, Ian, in a way that I'm not, but I've heard musicians say, it doesn't matter whether you were playing well or badly to the audience. It, it was a communication. Yeah. It was important that you were communicating, that you were trying to get something across. Yes. As, as a musician, you can be on stage and you know when you've got it right. Mm. It doesn't really matter what the audience thinks, yeah. <laughs> frankly. It's very nice if, if there's a sort of congruence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on the whole, it's, um, I describe music as having floating intentionality. It has an aboutness, but that aboutness is indeterminate. But the fact of its aboutness is not, in a sense. It, it, it affords scope for doing things that language is perhaps not very good at. So could you explain helpful. that a bit? So it represents something, but there may be no fact of the matter about what it represents. Yeah, it's an issue of consensual referentiality, which we require in language, we don't require in music. We know it's about in some respect, um, but we so don't... So we, we, we agree that it's, a, it's about something. Yeah. Without, without necessarily agreeing what, it, what it's about. The, yeah. the, the person playing it and the person listening... Exactly. Might have completely different ideas. And in fact, even two people playing together very successfully can have quite different ideas about what it is precisely that they're doing. And, and Ian, does your floating intentionality mm -hmm. allow um, musical works to sort of accrete meaning in the context in which they occur or are played? I mean, I'm, I was absolutely good because I was struck by an, an example that um, I heard at a, at a uh, mm -hmm. conference, Deirdre. Gribben talk about she was a she's a Northern Irish composer and well, she yeah. asked to compose a, a a piece which was about New York and it was called Empire States. Uh -huh. She wrote it and she was due to go to New York, uh, you know, for the premiere, uh, and then nine eleven happened. Ah. Now she, for a long time she couldn't get there, but they then said we want you to come. It's important you come and you play this piece. And she said when the piece was played people responded to it and felt it had meanings I certainly never had in mind as a composer. But in a way, it had taken on those meanings, I think, from the context in which it was received mm. and played. Yeah, there's a, there's a nice article on Barber's Adagio, which became the kind of American national musical memorial following 
In fact, it's fulfilled that function on several occasions, probably most notably initially after Kennedy was assassinated. But most recently, um, after 9-11, that adagio became one of the most piece, most played pieces in the USA. And people felt that it, it somehow summarized what they felt and what they understood mm-hmm. after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Barbara wrote it when in 19... 1950s? Yeah. yeah. The same piece of music can acquire totally different meanings in, yeah. in different historical ages. I want to make sense some not, more. Not wholly different. It would be very, yeah. very difficult for that particular piece to be associated with, as Diana put it, a high yeah. arousal situation. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, I want to ask a question about age. There's a question here. Is there evidence that age impacts people's enjoyment or processing of music? I can remember songs from my adolescence as if I learned them yesterday. There was a song from my adolescence that was a dance remix of Barbara's Adagio for Strings. So that was a, that was a clear counterexample to what you just, just said. And, but, you know, <laughs> Make it stop. It's a question for Diana of um, age. Do you see age effects when, when you study what's going on in people's brains? Um, so actually, I don't study age effects myself, but I know people are interested mm. in age for different reasons. Um, I think when what was alluded to in the question perhaps was mm. reminiscence bump sort of yep. thing, where you're yep. really connected to music that you heard a lot in your adolescence. And I think it's because when you're listening mm. to music in your adolescence, is this thing that you just keep doing over and over again, and it's <laughs> helping you forge your identity, you know, your right, preferences yeah. of who you are. And inevitably, when you sort of hear this music again, you're just taken right back to when this was Do you all. I think it becomes, you know, the the new as you get older, the new music is always what the what the younger generation is using to form its identities. Exactly. <laughs> and so it loses its particular social relevance for you. I think so. I think you move on to other things. You've kind of formed your identity, and I don't know, not to sort of put everyone in a, you know the same basket. Oh. I think people, most people, don't care. Adolescents don't care about what people think, but mm. there is this element of what do I like, what do I know, yes. what do other people like, and it's important. Yeah, musically speaking, you turn into your parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a question here about um, value and benefits of music therapy for brain injured children and adults. Should we? Uh, Go to that, Diana. Do you have any thoughts um, on that? Yeah, so I mean, there's lots of ways in which music mm. has been proposed to be of benefit. And actually, as you know, people in music therapy go ahead and you know, follow intuitions and you know, maybe some principles that have been developed over time. As psychologists, neuroscientists, we want to better understand why they might have these kinds of impacts that they do. And mm. for example, just to give it a couple examples in um, the MMB group, um, my colleague and Lauren Stewart, and she works with Ian on at least one of these projects. Mm. Um, One of the projects looks at the extent to which music can be used to motivate correct kinds of movement in stroke survivors. So, you know, it's really important that you make the right kinds of movement and can we use music to sort of motivate you to make the right kinds of movement by just messing around with how it sounds. recover some of those motor... Yeah, so there's that's one example. I mean, with Ian, she's also looked at um, how it can affect mental health around, you know, in perinatal periods and so on and so forth. People have used it to try to tackle aphasias, you know, difficulty mm. with language. It has this rhythmicity that you mm. can try to use to get people to create sound at the time yeah. they should, et cetera, et cetera. And I think our job is really to, you know, as researchers, is to try to understand what the mechanisms are so that you know, there are people in therapy can use them kind of knowingly and with evidence and continue to do the work that they do. Yeah. A lot mm. of it has to do, I think, also with the predictability, and that's where the rhythmic framework comes in, in terms of 
for instance, with stroke patients, providing temporal frameworks against which they can evaluate and experience their own performance. A lot of people will have noted, I think, in that question mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the fact that a lot of people will say, for people with dementia, uh, mm -hmm. with speech and memory, it, isn't it amazing they can, they can still recall whole, you know, whole songs and whole uh, uh, pieces of music? And yet, exactly because of the reason that they may have laid this down in youth, rehearsed it again and again, and, it, mm. and and I think this is a crucial part, that it's disconnected from language, a bit like smell. This is why it doesn't get interfered with and reworked. It's in its own compartment so that, you know, when, when you hear something that triggers it, it comes out without having been reworked and rehearsed with lots of language. I mean, W.V. W. Quine, a very famous philosopher, to, at the end of his life, a lot of philosophers I knew were going to see him, cheer him up. And they sat there with him and they sang this old song from his Harvard days that he knew, and he sang three, three verses of it and, and smiled away. And, and they got to the end, they said, that was wonderful, Van. And he turned to them and said, who are you? So that kind of strange preservation, completely disconnected from the rest of, of, mm. of the way the brain's coping, is, I think, a bit of a mystery. But it definitely looks like rehearsal, repetition, and as Ian says, prediction. Mm. And there's a question here about whether music has the same effect as drugs. For example, triggering release of dopamine, serotonin. Yep. And it's cheaper. <laughs> Illegal. <laughs> Good answer. There's a question also about lyrics. Do lyrics play an important role in the perception of music? Mm. It does seem like when you, when you hear a song with lyrics in English, you hear it quite differently mm. if the lyrics are not. But we can still enjoy songs that have lyrics in other languages. Are the lyrics also an element of the, of the music? At one level, you'd have to say they absolutely have to be because the only music that is universal is song in every culture. Mm. So there's an intrinsic... In fact, one could argue, and I do argue, that we can't clearly distinguish between language and music, or rather between speech and music. Many other world cultures don't have that as a clean or clear distinction. There's a kind of continuum between what we might think of as music and what we might think of as speech, and somewhere in the middle is poetry, song, who knows. Mm. So lyrics might be simply an integral part of one of the key elements, one of the key manifestations of music. I want to um, to move on, I think, to evolution. It's a question for you, Ian, I think. How deep a history does music have, as far as we know? The oldest unambiguously musical instrument that we know of is about 40,000 years old from southern Germany, or rather they are about 40,000 years ago, old, um, because several were found. Some are uh, birdborne, birdborne pipes, and at mm. least one is an ivory tusk pipe, about the same size as the birdborne pipe. It was really about as soon as humans get to Europe that you find these things. And it's not, it's very definitely not that humans got to Europe, decided, oh, we're in Southern Germany, mm. we'd better invent music. <laughs> um, it's just there's been more intensive searching, I suppose, in Europe. To a certain extent, yeah. And don't forget, much of the continent was covered by ice, so it was just impenetrable. The point about the, the ivory tusk flute is that this was an immense expenditure of labor. And labor was not cheap in a survival critical time. 
So music must have been very, very important to these people in one way or another. And probably, almost undoubtedly, came with modern humans out of Africa. So I would really put the time depth of music at about the origins of Homo sapiens. And in fact, probably somewhere around about Heidelbergensis, which is mm, predecessors of Neanderthals and ourselves, which might go back, I don't know, 600, 700,000 years. And so how are you defining music when you, when you address this question? It's good. We're question. not talking about modern music. What are we talking about? Well, what do we mean by music in any case? We're used to thinking in contemporary Western society of music as something to which we listen. And in mm -hmm. fact, there being two classes of people, musicians who make music and people who listen to music, consumers, the audience. Again, most contemporary world cultures, that distinction breaks down particularly in traditional societies, Amazon, um, South African rainforest, people don't just listen to music, people do music and hear it. We're e they're equally performers and listeners, performers and audience. You make music together. It's always this communal activity. Thomas Torino, an ethnomusicologist, distinguishes between what he calls presentational music and participatory music. And in almost every world culture, we find both types. In our culture, presentational is foregrounded. In other world cultures, participatory is mm -hmm. foregrounded. But everyone in Western culture can be expected to engage in participatory musical behavior. If you go to a football match, you might find yourself surrounded by people mm -hmm. all singing the same interesting... In the old songs. days, yeah, when there were, when there were fans exactly, in football when stadiums. Things, yes. And there's some one. There's actually been some wonderful ethnographic work done on um, football chants and football songs, particularly in, in um, Turkey, for instance. And some of them can be very, very funny and very, very obscene at the same time. And actually, interestingly, highly rehearsed. But often these things are quite spontaneous. Everyone would expect everyone to be able to join in singing "Happy Birthday," for instance. Mm. It's it's not an aberration that you're able to do this. So everyone can make music. Everyone can participate in yeah. making music. So you think when we're thinking about music in human prehistory, yeah. something like that, that scene of, of parents gathering around a cake and singing happy birthday yeah. with the children is what we should think about, this idea of music playing a role in a ritual, perhaps. Not even in a ritual. Um, not, even in, not necessarily in something as, um, if you like, codified as a ritual, but certainly it can play, it, it was very likely playing roles in ritual from very early on. But as I said earlier, I don't think one can distinguish cleanly between music and speech. If one thinks of mm -hmm. people just sitting around chatting for the sake of it, not seeing anything much in particular, meaning not to the fore, but just the act of chatting to the fore, what uh, Malinowski called phatic communion then that's probably playing the same sort of functional role in human relationships as mm. music. So you see them both as playing a, a sort of bonding role, I suppose, helping yeah. to bind together these early human groups, composed and of people who are not necessarily close relatives. Exactly, yeah. And, and in fact, continuing to do so in the present day. That bonding function, I think, is integral. And it's a dimension of the participatory um, nature of music. In a way of managing conflict, I suppose. Precisely. I've, I've characterised it as characterised music, participatory music, as a means of managing social uncertainty. Now, in fact, the same goes for mm. something like phatic communion. It's a, an excellent way of managing 
unclarities in how people relate to each other. If you think of where music un unambiguously happens in world societies, it tends to happen at weddings, changes of status, mm. initiation, funerals, etc. Where a rites society, of passage, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Whereas a, a society is changing and you don't know what's going to happen. How do we manage it? We do music together. Mm. And so do you see a story that it has this sequence of steps where it's starting with just chanting, just, just vocalizing, and then the, the manufactured instruments come along later, or do you think they're there at the beginning? Well, it depends what you mean by manufactured instruments. It doesn't take much to make an instrument, actually. I, I've known people who could produce a, a song out of a stone, almost literally. And in fact, mm. I did some work about 20 years ago, looking at whether or not one could use what were construed as flint tools to yeah. make sounds. And if, having used mm. these tools to make sounds, could you tell they'd been used to make sounds rather than being used as a tool? The answer to both questions is yes and yes. You can use them to make sounds. And mm. yes, you can tell that they've been used to make sounds. And sound is, is, is a crucial part of flint napping itself, isn't it? That the, the feedback from the sound as you yeah. hit the flint, is, is crucial to actually doing it right. Yeah, the first thing a flint knuckle will do when they pick up a big flint cobble is tap it. Now that one won't work. Oh, that one mm. won't work. So there's, there's definite feedback there. Do you think that's part of the story, that you know, for purely practical reasons, humans start tapping flints and you I get think, rhythms? Well, I think, I think rhythms probably emerge much earlier, perhaps along with bipedalism. Um, I could imagine, for instance, Australopithecines moving across the savannah. Australopithecines were, were not big, they were maybe three and a half, four feet tall. And, pretty, and you had saber-toothed tigers in those days. This is an unfriendly environment. And I suspect something like bipedalism moving together in time was a way of mm. being able to communicate to each other very easily. Think of yourself walking down the street with someone and try and talk to them out of step. You can't. You actually can't do it. The conversation mm. will collapse. Do you sort of naturally align your steps with each other? Yeah. Now, why should that be necessary? I suspect it's necessary because that means that communicative features like facial expression, hand gestures, etc., remain in constant visual frame as you walk. This is a hypothesis, by the way. It's not, this is not proven in any mm. sense. But it's as good a hypothesis as you can up with. So if you're in step, communicative bits of you, your face, your hands, your shoulders, your body position, remain in constant visual frame. If you're out of step, you have to make a lot of effort to see what's going on. So it's actually quite an efficient way of maintaining high communicative flow. I, I read a, an interesting hypothesis that I liked. Um, it was the idea that we actually move together so that we slowly get adapted to that regularity and mm. we can hear if a predator is coming <laughs> because we we can suddenly detect these new sounds that may emerge and what have you yeah and we can signal to each other predator over there without having to slow down and stop as it were mm -hmm. we can do it very efficiently so that's a possibility but it's certainly the case that keeping in time together is something that is likely to be part of the mosaic that constitutes what we might think of as musical capacities. They don't all need, mm. all the bits don't need to emerge at the same time in evolutionary terms. And this is what uh, Mike Tomasello calls shared intentionality, isn't yeah. it? This idea yeah. that we're engaged in an action together that can be as simple as just walking 
yeah. somewhere in step with each other. And you mm -hmm. think even from that, from that incredibly simple case of a joint action, you, you almost have the, the rudiments of music, I suppose, because mm -hmm. the agents are listening for a, for a rhythm, the, yeah. the rhythm of their own feet. And it might just be also that it's not, it's not necessarily a nice thing. There is one type of people who tend to walk about together are armies. So why do we do that? Why is basic training, walking around, obeying commands, together with a large group of other people? Bonded, bonding, and in the context of bonding, a kind of... Um, Susceptibility to command, susceptibility to messages. Mm. It also puts, a, I think, a, a, a useful dent in the idea that music is all about emotion. Because I think that that bonding, that control, you know, armies march together, but it's not a, it's not marching with some sort of emotional pleasure. Yeah. And it, it, it's also, I mean, if you think the other people who are trained as well in movement and rhythm as that are dancers. Yes. Yeah analogy between yeah. uh, army marching and, and dance troops and yet and, and people think a dancer will be uh, feeling the emotion and therefore moving to express it but often if they had those emotions it would hamper their ability to yeah. move so they're, they're, they're actually doing something quite subtly different which is a signal that's conveying and I think, um, I think the, the, the connection with movement is really interesting because we internally do synchronization so we yeah. hear our own footsteps as we walk we make noise with our feet and our brain is paying attention to the noise we make and the movements we're making and a lovely piece of work by Anna Tadura and Ophelia yes. Derois showed that if you put headphones on people and you you raise the pitch of their footsteps people start moving much faster and they're all sort of bright and lively. And if you lower the, the pitch, mm. they start moving slow and sluggishly and heavy. So it's as though yeah. the brain is trying to sync the sounds and the movement. And then it's not that big a leap to say that was in, intrapersonal. Maybe we can do it interpersonally. Yes. We, we, we did a, an, in, a kind of preliminary ethnographic study a few years ago, just exploring how people walk together trying to check up are they talking to each other are they communicating are they having a good relationship mm -hmm. for example and we were walking through one of the colleges and the, the ethnomusicologist small female ethnomusicologist with whom i was walking was wearing quite clumpy shoes and she nudged me and said that guy's in training with me watch and she sped up and slowed down and so did he out of vision and suddenly what? realized that's why high heels evolved Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I guess that was not intended seriously, the, the high heels <laughs> point. <laughs> so is, is, is music a human universal then? Is it that everything, everywhere you look in the ethnographic record, every society anyone has ever studied, there's always music and always dance? Or is that always, not true? Always something like music. And you might barely recognize, you might barely recognize it as music. It might be doing jobs that seem quite different from those that music does within the cultures with one with which one is familiar but yes something like music is there just as something like language is always there well something that, that always that plays that social bonding function through the use of rhythm or something like that let's say it serves as an a medium for affiliative communicative interaction 
which doesn't really distinguish it from speech, but I would suspect that the subordinate category is actually... Yeah, you've been pressing, challenging that distinction. Sorry, I'm just going to say that's a very nice uh, point, Ian, because unlike speech, given that we actually know something about the mechanisms by which, you know, musical rhythm entrains heart rate, when people's heart rates are in sync, they feel a little more aware of one another's emotional Mm. state feel together better. A lovely paper by Kovalinka et al. Yes. When they were monitoring the heart rates of people watching a firewalker walk across coals, yes. they had the heart rate of the firewalker, then their nearest and dearest, then friends, then strangers. Yep. Nearest and dearest's heart rates were absolutely m- mimicking the heart rate of the firewalker. And as you got less related to them, so it was further away. Mm-hmm. And I think music is actually a mechanism for ensuring that, that you know, heart entrainment is going to put mm-hmm. people together. So it's unlike speech, which has got all its slippery parts to it, this is much yeah. more directive for that. But in speech, we do find temporal regularity from mm-hmm. time to time. Mm-hmm. And generally, when we find it, it's fulfilling one or the other function is fulfilling the function of enhancing predictability just as I'm doing now mm-hmm. so you're adding beats of the hand mm-hmm. or it's trying to elicit a social connection mm-hmm. as in a politician giving a speech mm-hmm. often they will end a phrase with a, a, a plonking three beat unit <laughs> but more interestingly we've found recently that when people are, are talking together and getting on, they're just kind of relaxed and chatting, fatic communion, across a pair of turns, across adjacent turns, a beat may emerge towards the end of one turn and be picked up at the beginning of the next turn, mm. serving a, um, a pragmatic function to indicate attitudinal alignment. Yeah, mm. I, feel, I feel what you feel, as it were. Yes, I agree. So is language borrowing from music? I mean, could music be a precursor? I think Kevin Dunbar thinks that. Is that right? I think actually language and music are the same thing. <laughs> I'm afraid so. We have a, a communicator, a repertoire of communicative behaviors. And in Western cultures, we tend to think of this end as music, this end as language. But there's a lot of stuff in between. Yeah. That's where most of the so you don't mean they're the same thing, but you mean they, they fall on a, on a spectrum. So you've got this idea of the music having meaning of a very indeterminate nature at one end versus down to, you know, really precise language where the meaning is incredibly clear. And then you see a spectrum of intermediate cases. But but actually, I do mean they are the same thing in evolutionary terms. I don't think you get one before the other. Mm. Mm. I think think they both serve the same function, bonding, managing conflict. It raises this interesting question about cause and consequence, doesn't it? That... Is it that we, we evolved this capacity for shared intentionality for some other reason? And then one of the things we could do with it was music and language, and that was really useful because we could manage conflict. Or was it rather that the need for something like that, for something to help us manage mm. conflict in, in groups, actually drove the evolution of shared intentionality, of cooperating, mm. doing things together in the first place? I suspect the latter human neonates are extremely useless um, if, if left to themselves they'll die quite quickly unlike rats for instance um, we are extremely altruistic. we require from infancy onwards mm. to be in a social context just altruistic in the sense of just 
incredibly vulnerable at birth, just yes, absolutely exactly. helpless. Exactly. And it's, it makes sense that we construct social niche construction, if you like, that music and speech become ways of organizing our interactions that facilitate our continued survival. And they are, if you like, socially embedded, socially, mm -hmm. con um, socially contingent, and come to serve uh, the function of an evolutionary niche. Do you see anything like music in non-human animals? Obviously, that there's superficial resemblance when you hear birdsong, for example. Absolutely. But then when you look closely at the birdsong that most closely resembles music, I don't know, Skylark, Robin, for instance, is basically saying, no, this is mine, go away and die. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very nice. The bird calls that don't really resemble music tend to be those that are associable with pair bonding, for instance, pair bonding behavior, serving a function of enhancing social connectedness. So there's a mm. kind of disjunction, I think, in that. Having said that, it's very likely, it has to be the case, that in other species there are behaviors that are analogous and perhaps analogous to and perhaps homologous with at least some of the components of music but not the whole complex. Drumming, rhythm, gorillas drumming? Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, Barney, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Because, I mean, I've seen this question posed, um, you know, did we sort of branch off and, you know, create music yeah. and, you know, continue to make music? Hmm. Or did different, you know groups of organisms decide there's this challenge that we'd like to overcome and it's and we're going to overcome it with music mm. so um and this idea that when we discover barney you know we think okay well maybe it's could you explain who barney is uh this chimp who showed some regular some decent ability to drum oh, and, yeah. yeah create mm. something that sounded fairly regular in terms of uh, drumming yeah. Um, as opposed to just kind of random <laughs> sounds. Yeah. And that was clearly very difficult to find because we only heard about him in 2015. Is that in captivity or in the wild? I think it's captivity, isn't it? Not actually sure, um, actually. There's some, there's some in the wild, at least that's what Tecumseh mm. Fitch says. There's some... Yeah, chimp, chimp drumming. But chimp drumming is hmm, one of the key characteristics of humans, modern humans and probably earlier humans, is that... We can not only keep time with each other, but we can adjust that timing behavior. So, for instance, if you ask two people to tap in time with each other, unless one of them is a drummer, and we, we know because we found this out, they will ad mutually adapt to each other's timing. So it's not one leading and one following continuously. They'll, they'll keep swapping roles of, of leader and follower from moment to moment. So we, they will adapt to each other. Other primate species don't seem to be very good at this. Mm. Um, there was a famous experiment done using, I think, five macaques, not in this mm. country, training them to do a very simple rhythmic task. In one case, it took 18 months yeah. and the poor, poor animal lost 50% of its body weight. Mm. And they, could, and they ended up being able to do it, but in a way that was quite different from the way in which humans would do it. This is a mm. behavior that would take approximately 30 seconds to learn for a human. So there does seem to be a big disjunction there in terms of flexibility 
and mm. adaptable adaptability, mutual adaptability. And a huge difference, I suppose, between purely solo hitting a rhythm versus mm. cooperative. Yeah two people or a band of people playing together because yeah. it's then you can get the social exactly, yeah. side going. What you're saying Ian, reminds me of, of you know, Hume's analogy of two people in a boat when mm. they try to pull on the oars, they'll fall <laughs> into the pattern together. Yeah. I mean, it's as if mm. this is really quite deep in our nature is that way of mutually adjusting to each other, non-collusive yes. yeah. and cooperation. Yeah. Joint know-how, as, as I've yeah. called it in my own work. Um, I'd love to mix in some questions from the from the audience again mm. now. Um, there's one here that I think is for you, Diana, about music and pain. Mm. Can music have an analgesic effect? And if so, why? Why indeed? Actually, maybe it's, you know, have you done work on Does this? it at all? Yeah, I mean, suggested, yeah, it's been suggested by studies yeah. that it does. Yeah. And certainly more and more it's used in, it's used instead of an, you know, analgesic in, mm. before surgery, because it doesn't have all these side effects. Um, yeah. We think it's, yeah, what's kind of released um, by music. Music is, you know, leading to release of neurotransmitters, hormones, all sorts of chemicals in the body. And the tests that people run to sort of try to understand, is it having an analgesic effect? You know, can you sit against the wall and how long for? Is it why? It's just kind of the chemistry of our bodies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one earlier question was, um, does music have the same effect as drugs? And the answer is, Kind of yes, because it can impact on the same brain areas in very much the same way. Dopamine release, for instance, in the nucleus accumbens. Now, that's codeine, music, fine, same thing. I, I think it could be, there's another possible explanation, though, of mm. the analgesic effect, and that's attention distraction, because we yes. know that management's often about trying to focus on something else, and music yeah. is very attention capturing. Yeah. Mm. Being really absorbed in it. I think it's likely to do the job. Yeah, I think the music that's been found to work best tends to be self-selected mm. yeah. rather than anything else. And the, the terrible news is that when you're undergoing surgery, usually young, uh, uh, you know, dramatic surgeons like to put on their music, their loud rock music that uh, <laughs> gets them through it. And usually the rest of the theatre staff are just thinking, this is absolutely terrible. But, but you know, given that we know that the brain will still process those signals, mm. it might even increase the, the post-traumatic, the post-operational you know, uh, trauma to have to absorb that while you're on the table. Mm. Patients should choose what they want to hear before they go on the line. Yeah, but I mean, people occasionally might... wake up, don't they, from under anaesthetic, yeah. and that's not what you want yeah. to hear. No, but on the other hand, you'd rather like the surgeon to be performing at the top of the game. Yeah. <laughs> You, you do, but there's a funny thing surgeons do, which we've learned, is they've got the music on loud, and when they finish and they rip off the gloves and the, uh, the, the swab nurse is still to remember how many swabs they released, she's counting 17, 18, and then he just blasts the music high and she thinks, God, I can't concentrate. So, you know, I think maybe he should be using the, the choice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's a question here for you, Barry, about soldiers marching. Hmm. Why, why do you assume that soldiers uh, have no emotions while marching? Couldn't it be that uh, marching together in a group of dozens or hundreds actually has a oh, yeah. huge yeah. impact emotionally? I guess the idea is that it builds this, this sense of, I suppose, yeah. loyalty. And you know, you can yeah. end up doing things when you're part of that group that yeah. would would absolutely yeah. terrify you. Um, yeah. I don't think they don't. Of it. I don't think they don't have emotions and they might even have group emotions and some of the time it might be mm. irritation and it might be boredom, but they definitely do have emotions. 
but, but the drilling function, I think, is not about instilling an emotion. And also, military training and drill has a lot of fake emotions. You know, when the drill sergeant goes into somebody's ears and shouts, you will get this done. He's not really angry. He's not angry. It's performing because that's going to have the effect. It's going to cause whatever he needs to get to happen. He'll capture someone's attention. He's not, he's not expressing real anger. So I think, you know, we've got to be careful with the idea that I, music and emotion is, is, is the thing that everybody loves. And, and we might distinguish, does music cause emotion? Does music convey emotion? Mm. Does music express emotion? And these are all different. Mm. Notice music can cause emotion without expressing it. Because if I'm in a lift or on the end of a phone call and having to mm. wait, I hear something that drives me spare. It's causing emotion, but it's not expressing <laughs> that emotion. Mm. Uh, so, so there's yeah, how it, and it can convey because somebody can play something to make you have the emotion without themselves yeah. feeling it. I was just thinking of the, the flight of the Valkyries in Apocalypse Now yes. and the, um, the idea of music as something that can be both to, to, to manage fear in your group yeah. and instill fear in, them, in, their in the other group. Sort of another possible evolutionary function, at least. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a reasonably good argument for suggesting that music could be used. Like language, it's not necessarily nice. Right, yeah, the function doesn't have to be something we, we have to be proud of. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Barry, you mentioned the group emotions. <clears throat> what did you mean by that? I mean, we, certainly when we're experiencing music, we often have, uh, I suppose, coordinated emotional yeah. responses. We're feeling the same things at the same time. Is there more to it than that, do you think? I think there is. I mean, we're assuming that emotions are embodied and yeah. there's a changed physio physiology. I mean, there's a sort of physiological signature to different kinds of emotion. Mm. And, and when music apes or mimics the physiology of the body, and insofar as we get entrainment, that we actually start to mirror that. So, I mean, this is a point that David Huron has made before. So when we're sad, we speak more quietly, we speak slower. Mm. So if the music slows down, quietens, it might induce similar physiological or cardiac signatures of that emotion and then grief is is much more dramatic <laughs> so you can have strings that are making this noise and mimicking mm. the kind of um, shock and arousal of sort of extreme mm. grief so i think i think there is a way in which if if it's able to do that to a number of people at the same time it can put them into similar states and insofar as they're able to tune in through interoception, if they've got interoceptive accuracy, they can tune into their own state, they're quicker and better to recognize the emotions of others. And it can, it can increase the sense of feeling together. So it goes back to that point Diana made earlier about music being linked to theory of mind, to, to understanding what other people are thinking and feeling. I'm not, I'm not seeing it that way at all. I'm seeing it as much lower level, a much more mm. primitive mechanism where you don't even have to be aware of it being done. Emotional contagion, just kind yeah. of the yeah. acoustic features. Yeah. yeah, it's a kind of emotional contagion. So it's below the level of theory of mind, I think. It's always someone else's emotion that somehow, or, you know, that's being shared or something. And it's, you know, what might be expressed by a piece of music, like you said, due to, you know, how it mm. mimics 
sounds that we yeah. make in different emotional states. Yeah. I think um, I think that's one of the joys of music, actually, just exploring those emotions, you know, mm. getting carried away with them for a bit. I never actually, I never actually started in emotion research. I thought, no, I want to understand how music is cognitively processed, and then I'd meet Ian, and it's like the social aspects. And then at some point, I fell into emotion research, and I think. For me, it's less about, you don't actually have to be able to label your emotion. I think yeah. it's really about how your physiology, those brain areas that care about, don't care about music. And, and we use music for emotional regulation. I know yeah. I do. Yeah. If I want to speed myself up, I want something yeah. rousing. If, yeah. I, if, if I want to be very contemplative, I can find the, the music that does that. Mm. You know, and if, if we are feeling sad, we sometimes even like to listen to sad music. Yeah. We indulge ourselves these links between certain styles of music and certain emotions, some music makes us feel sad, others happy. Are these culturally specific links or are they the same across cultures? Um, people have tried to disentangle how much of it is cultural, how much of it is biological. And, you know, there's evidence for a bit of both. I mean, I'd love to hear from Barry and Ian, but um, there are just some low level acoustic features of music yeah. that, you know, auditory scene analysis will make us more agitated, less agitated. So as soon as music uses that, you know, we're going yeah. to respond in very similar ways. But there's others that are learned, our tonal systems, you know, is minor really sad or is it, you know, I mean, some people argue it's smaller intervals, a bit more sad sounding, but mm. you could also just unlearn that if we yeah. have enough context where minor music is played against a very joyful affair. So mm. I feel like, yeah, we'd have a huge computer or machine or whatever you like to call it in our heads and it's happy to learn, make associations and, you know, interpret music on that basis, feel things on that basis. We're almost out of time. Ian, did you want to Well, just in terms of cross-culturally, I, mean, I agree with John, it is a mixture. Cultures can produce very, very different shapes for their musics to the extent that one can, one can come into the culture and get it completely wrong, mm. Mm. even in respect to some quite supposedly primitive characteristics that you think must be universal. Turns out actually slightly different. Yeah. Time for one last question, I think. It, it's, it's the obligatory COVID-19 question. Ah. Obviously living through very strange times, mm doing all these events on Zoom. We're not getting that in-person bonding, I suppose, that was so, so crucial to the evolutionary function of music. What role do you see for music in, in helping us get through this and in, in reinforcing social solidarity within society? We're quite good at managing and we have the technological means to do so. That is, we have access to, these days we have an ac access to virtually all the music that's ever been recorded. And a lot of people are just wallowing in it, frankly, and sharing it. The one thing we cannot do is share music in real time with each other, unless we use some very, very strange protocols on the web, which more or less strip everything out. There's a program called Jack Trip that cancels everything and just all the error checking, etc., and just snaps signals backwards and forwards between two nodes. Um, so we can get two people interacting, but no more than that. So it's... That's, that's it's sad, it, isn't it? It's, it? In a way, it's a sad time for music at the moment. Extremely. It is, but it also is an op opportunity because music is, uh, you know, music like, like smell has that sort of triggering function mm. right back. I think a lot of us are exploring some of our musical souvenirs and remembering happier times when we were with one another yeah. and in different yeah. places. And, I have and, to say, I don't, I don't personally miss the absence of smell from uh, from zoom meetings oh i but the, uh, be careful the, what you wish for it <laughs> usually results in long-term depression so be careful what you wish for on, on that sort of sad note i suppose 
<laughs> about you know and we're all hoping i think to to return to a world with with Absolutely. live music in it and with that mm. opportunity for social bonding that it affords um, i just want to say thank you to ian and diana and barry for a very interesting discussion and thanks to everyone in the audience for attending and for your excellent questions please check the forum for philosophy's website for future events thank you thank, thank you, you. <laughs>